You're listening to Time in the Word. How can God accept me? Only if I trust in Jesus Christ. This is the biblical doctrine of justification by faith that Paul taught the Galatians. I cannot be saved by anything I do. I can be saved only by what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. There is no other way for me to make myself right with God because I am unrighteous. But Jesus made things right through his crucifixion and resurrection. All that is left for me to do is receive the gift of God's free grace by putting my faith in God's Son. This doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has always had its detractors. If justification comes by grace, then all the glory goes to God. But people want to keep some of the glory for themselves. Thus they seek to justify themselves before God by their own works. Martin Luther encountered this problem when he began preaching the gospel in his native Germany. According to Luther, the doctrine of justification is this, that we are pronounced righteous and are saved solely by faith in Christ and without works. In today's study, Dr. Gonzalez will begin his exposition of Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. As God ministers to you through this series of studies, and as you experience God's grace in your own life, share these podcasts with others so that they too may be blessed by God's word and his amazing grace. This morning I'm only going to read the first five verses of Galatians chapter 3. There Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he supply, or does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? One of the questions that we had previously been asking ourselves as we've worked through uh, this, this epistle is how can God accept me? How can God accept you? And we argued that from Scripture the answer is only if I trust Jesus Christ. This is the biblical doctrine of justification by faith that Paul had taught the Galatians. I, you, cannot be saved by anything we do, but I can be saved. And this is the beauty of the gospel, the message of the good news. But I can be saved only by what Jesus Christ did on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. And this is, you know, these statements I'm giving you right now are are central to the argument Paul is making here because you remember the Judaizers are bringing in a different doctrine, a different theology with them that contradicts what Paul had taught them previously and it contradicts uh, what the scripture clearly teaches. There is no way for me to make myself right with God because I am unrighteous. But Jesus made things right through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, and all that is left for me to do is simply receive the gift of God's free grace 
by putting my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all Him, through and through. Even faith itself is a gift of God. Now, if justification comes by grace, now think about this because this is part of the problem that not only the Judaizers had, but many religionists of the present day have. If it is true that justification comes by grace, then all the glory goes to God. But people who want to keep some of the glory for themselves have a problem with this doctrine. Thus they seek to justify themselves before God by their own works. Martin Luther argued that, and I quote, the doctrine of justification is this, that we are pronounced righteous and are saved solely by faith in Christ and without works. That is critical. Because anything other than that is going to become, by definition, another gospel, which Paul will say is no gospel at all. So the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a doctrine for the whole Christian life from the beginning to the very end. And I'll kind of talk about this a little bit as we move through this text. We tend to think of justification as something that has happened in the past, in the life of a believer, and we no longer think of the effects or, or, or the continued work that justification has in the present time in the life of the believer. And we'll expound a little bit about that in a moment. Now, it, it, it may be just helpful to review for a moment Paul's argument to this point. We've already gone through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and in those two chapters, he used a spiritual autobiography to prove that he was indeed a genuine apostle of the one true gospel. Now in chapters 3 and 4, and we begin chapter 3 today, he explains the theology of the gospel, and he begins with a rebuke. Paul's rebuke must have caused quite a stir when his letter was first read in Galatia. Listen to what he says in the first part of verse 1, chapter 3. O foolish Galatians. Imagine starting, well, not, the letter doesn't necessarily start right there, but it's not that it gets any better as, as it goes from the very beginning to now. Imagine the public reading of this epistle to churches in, in, in Galatia. He says, O foolish Galatians. Look at the word he uses. Who has bewitched you? Paul was clearly upset. The Galatians were in danger of, in essence, nullifying the grace of God. These so-called Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem to persuade them that the works of the law were necessary for justification. And let me ask you this question. Since we know that there is no other religion in the world that teaches that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thus, every other religion requires some kind of doing of works. How prevalent is the problem today? Churches are full today, but they're listening to a different message that has now injected into that message drop by drop by drop over a year, over five years, over a decade, and entire denominations no longer believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But in that case, in the case, the question then becomes, if justification, uh, if law, works of the law are necessary for justification, the question becomes, what was the point of the cross? 
Why would someone else have to die for my sins? Here's what, you know, as you, as you unpack the question. Why would someone else have to die for my sins if I could take care of them myself? That's kind of the, what Paul is wanting the Galatians to think through. The logical implication of justification by works is that, as he said in Galatians 2.21, Christ died for no purpose. That's what a religion of works says, in essence. Christ's atonement is not sufficient. We must, in some way, shape, or form, pick your poison, pick the color, the flavor. They're all saying the same thing. So with this thought in mind, Paul's subsequent outburst becomes completely understandable. One reformer wrote, and I quote, For when we hear that the Son of God with all his blessings is rejected, and that his death is esteemed as nothing, what godly mind will not break out into indignation? How can one in any way, shape, or form deviate from the true gospel, since doing so causes Christ to not be that perfect Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, whose only life, death, and resurrection can atone for our sins? How is it possible? He says, who has bewitched you? You foolish. In fact, if you read the Phillips translation, he says, you idiot Galatians. That's how he, he renders that section of the text. As far as, as Paul was able to tell, the Galatians were guilty of sheer spiritual stupidity. Again, J.B. Phillips paraphrases him in that section of verse 1 and says, Oh, you dear idiots in Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. Why? Because think of the implications of what you are allowing to be, you know, what you're beginning to believe versus what you had originally been taught and what you had originally experienced. Paul was at a loss to know how people could believe such nonsense. Who has bewitched you, he demanded. And that Greek term means to give someone the evil eye, to cast a spell over, to fascinate in the original sense of holding someone spellbound by an irresistible power. It was almost as if a sorcerer had cast some evil spell on them, as if a magician had had them under the hypnotic influence. Paul knew, of course, that the Galatians were not really enchanted. He's just using words to make a point. But they were under the influence of false teachers who wanted to add the law of Moses to faith in Christ to produce essentially, and this is what we have in the present, a Jesus plus gospel. I would expect that we all by experience know this to be a fact. One of the de devil's favorite stratagems is to distort the truth so that people can no longer tell the difference between the one true gospel and all the false alternatives. Drip, drip, drip. Doctrinal error has two primary sources. Number one, people's ignorance, sheer ignorance. They don't know. And number two, demonic malevolence. And the church in Galatia had kind of both issues going on. The Galatians themselves were so foolish as to abandon the gospel, but as we shall see, they were doing so because they were under spiritual attack. And by the way, that gives us something to think about in a practical sense. Remember, always remember, that Christian, the Christian doctrine is the battlefield where the most in intense spiritual warfare goes on. And that's where they were. 
In order to uh, sort of break the spell, if we want to use those terms, that they were under, the Galatians needed to do one thing, and that was to look at the cross. Paul follows his rebuke with this reminder. Look at the latter part of verse 1. It was before your eyes, and I'm interested at the terminology that he uses here, the choice of words. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The fact that Paul specifically mentions the eyes is intriguing because the ancients generally thought that enchantment came through the evil eye. Now they were bewitched. The Galatians needed to fix what? Their eye. And that certainly has a greater uh, implication than just a physical looking, but redirecting their spirit, uh, their spirit's eye, redirecting their heart's eye, redirecting their mind's eye, redirecting their physical eye back to the cross. The Galatians had seen the cross before when Paul came and preached the gospel. That word portrayed comes from the world of advertising. The Greeks used it to refer, for example, to the kind of public notice posted to show that a property was up for sale. So what the Galatians had seen then was essentially a graphic public display of the crucified Christ. Jesus been placarded before them as if on a giant billboard, not physically, but, and he was referring here to his proclamation of the gospel. You know, you often hear, we've all used this expression, uh, that, that it's often said that a picture is worth what? A thousand words. But think about this. If there was time for a thousand words, if there was time for a thousand words, people can see the picture for themselves which is what happened when Paul presented the gospel. Whether he preached standing out in the street or whether he preached it sitting in somebody's home uh, makes no point. He always, the point is this, he always publicized the same thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I suppose some people may sometimes wonder where the cross is because there's no physical cross. Indeed, I think that part of the church's beauty is that it has no icons to distract from the congregation from worshiping God. But there is the cross. We don't have it physically here, but there is a cross. Every time the scriptures are opened, every time Christ is preached, the message of the cross is lifted high for all to see. There is a cross. Listen to what this uh, individual says, I quote, Let those who want to discharge the ministry of the gospel aright Learn not only to speak and declaim, but also to penetrate into consciences so that men may see Christ crucified and that his blood may flow. When the church has such painters as these, she no longer needs wood and stone, that is, dead images. She no longer requires any pictures. Yes, a picture is worth a thousand words, but if we can take the time to speak the thousand words, we draw the picture ourselves. We need no icon. We engage in true worship at that point. This is the powerful preaching. It takes the mighty acts of God in history and displays them to minds and hearts in the present. By the time Paul was finished preaching to them, the Galatians literally felt 
as if they had seen the crucifixion themselves. And that was his point. The Galatians must have almost in a sense believed that they were themselves watching the living body of Christ nailed to that bloody cross. So when Paul and the other preachers preached, so when, when I and others preach today, we preach the gospel. We begin with the person of Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And we're reminded that Jesus is both man and God. He is a person with two natures, human as well as divine. The apostles first identified Jesus as the God-man because he was a man. Why? So that he might be able to enter into our situation and suffer for our sins because he was also God. Listen, he was able to do what none of us could do. He lived a perfect life, which was required to demonstrate the righteousness. He lived a perfect life of obedience so that he could offer a sacrifice of unspeakable value. The apostles preached that this Christ had been crucified. So to preach, and this is important for us who teach, to preach is to portray the cross. Paul always preached what he called in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. Or again, he resolved, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's gospel, our gospel, is the gospel of the crucified Christ. It is centered in the death of God's own son on the cross and on the implications of that death for salvation for the whole world. The danger for us today is no different than it was for the church in Galatia. In fact, the Bible tells us that in the end days, there will be man standing behind pulpits and churches dressed as if they were children of the living God, redeemed. Yet they will be the ones that will be drip, drip, drip. And after some time, remember we talked about this uh, this last Wednesday, a little leaven right, eventually permeates the whole bag. Is that true? Do we not have example after example after example in the present day? Paul was furious. Yes, indeed, he was bothered by the fact that such individuals were being allowed to come into the church and propagate a Jesus plus gospel. But he was furious that the Galatians would allow such a thing. And he, well, read the first couple of chapters and you'll see how, how this is the one epistle in which he doesn't open with his typical no time for that. What are we doing to protect the gospel? Not only here in this meeting hall. What are we doing to protect the gospel in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, with our friends and families? I can't tell you how many time, times I sit down with individuals who claim to be believers. And when I simply ask questions basic, how were you saved? Oh my, there's a Judaizer teaching in that church. And because the folks never bothered to pick up the scriptures for themselves, they believe it. My preacher said it. Human ignorance, our ignorance, and the devil's malevolence. What are you doing to protect the gospel? Wherever it is God has placed you every day. Is it important? What's at stake?